0: The biggest problems that need solving, ignorance, lack of education, and lack of critical thinking. I think in the United States, those are the the biggest problems right now. Even though we live in a very literate society, again, speaking historically, you know, there still are, in in particular, critical thinking is probably the biggest challenge. I I personally think that it ought to be, you know, a full course in critical thinking and passing it ought to be required for graduation from high school, then you got to get the teachers to to be able to teach to a a class that they should have to pass themselves. Critical thinking uh, applies to every problem. The lack of critical thinking applies to almost every problem I see.
1: Hey guys, before we get started, I want to tell you about today's show sponsor, Carta. Carta simplifies how startups manage equity track cap tables, and get valuations. Go to carta.com slash syndicate to get 10% off and learn more about how they can help you with managing your complicated cap table and keeping investors happy. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real, true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show.
0: So uh, nanotechnology has got uh, just this amazing amount of promise. The idea of nanotechnology is largely considered to have been uh, brought kind of into existence in a lecture by Richard Feynman, who was a 1965 Nobel laureate in physics. And he gave a talk called There's Room at the Bottom or There's Always Room at the Bottom or something, one of those. And, and in it, he discussed, you know, small machines making smaller machines making smaller machines. And he basically came up sort of with a concept of nanotechnology. And uh, K. Eric Drexler, who is one of the founders of the Foresight Institute, of which I'm an officer at the moment, uh, really kind of popularized the idea of nanotechnology and molecular manufacturing in his book, The Engines of Creation, uh, which he did after uh, leaving uh, MIT. Uh, 32 years ago, something like that. Anyway, good book, worth reading for sure. Uh, I've been thinking about doing a a version of it for elementary school kids. But the nanotechnology in general is talking about things at the nanoscale, which is basically a billionth of a meter. And uh, like my son, who's a a chem doctorate candidate at the moment says that, that, well, everything's nanotechnology. And to a certain extent, that's true. What we're really talking about at Foresight is molecular manufacturing, that is to say, building things from the molecules up and doing it in a way that nature doesn't. Nature kind of puts things together and it has really, really great systems. But we'd also like to be able to make machines do our bidding, if you will, and manufacture what we want to have manufactured. If I I can give you a sort of an example of something that goes on now, uh, it'll take me a couple of minutes. But uh, if I can sort of expand on my idea of and my vision for uh, molecular manufacturing and nanotechnology, you know, right now what we do is we, you know, we go to a mountain and we blow it up. And uh, the top goes flying off and we take it using all kinds of uh, toxins and acids and explosives. We gather that stuff up that's been sitting in the earth for some very long period of time. And we transport it using a whole bunch of energy and trucks and polluting mechanisms. And we take it to a place where... We apply lots, lots, lots more heat and uh, manufacturing to it, and and then that gets uh, sent to a, a further refining plant, and eventually you drive your vehicle down to the store and you pick up the end result of these, you know, un- unbelievable amounts of, of of pollution and energy use, and you take home a fork. And th- that just doesn't seem to be a really good use of you know millions of dollars worth of technology and uh, and you know irreversible despoiling of the planet. So what if instead you were able to make things from the molecules up? So you take a, you know basically you know enriched dirt in a slurry and you put it through a machine that will be on your kitchen counter or your your workbench in the garage and you know it might be about the size of a microwave and might look like one and you plug in an open source program and out comes a fork. And you haven't haven't done all this. You haven't even had to go to the store. Although going to the store is starting to become a thing in the past now anyway. But you know, the the promise of molecular nanotechnology is is purpose building things. I realize a fork is not a very exciting thing, although I, I think it is when I've got a piece of cake in front of me. But to Also be able to build machines that can, at uh, the command and and programming of a doctor, you know, go through your veins and clear plaque out of your arteries, rebuild muscles, rebuild possibly even brain tissue. All this stuff is somewhat in the future, but aspects of it are here now. So that, in a small soliloquy, is, is my idea about the promise of nanotechnology.
1: Oh, soliloquy. We just went Shakespeare. Basically, Ah. everything is physical. And if we can manufacture or manipulate physical objects, including the human body, we can pretty much create, do anything. You have a Star Wars replicator.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, that would be the idea. And there's even an X Prize for uh, a replicator uh, out there somewhere. Uh, I don't know how long till somebody claims it, but it's out there. And, um, you know, things can be built. You know, uh, a a tree is uh, essentially a machine that turns trace minerals and and carbon in the air turns air into wood. You know, it's a wood machine, and we we can do things like that with. Com- we should be able to do things like that with common materials.
1: And then we enter into a a post scarcity civilization, hopefully. So, in terms of nanotechnology, I went to Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech was supposed to be the hub of nanotechnology, and Atlanta in general. And this was this was five. This was a, this was a few years ago. It was the up and coming thing. It was hot. And suddenly, nanotechnology feels like it's it feels like it's flopped a little bit, at least in the VC scene and in the in the startup scene. What gives? And what's the history of nanotech?
0: So it's it's. Did you by the way did you have Ralph Merkel as one of your professors there? Or?
1: I did not. Oh, well,
0: he's a he's a good friend of of foresight. Did it flop? I don't believe it did flop. It's just become sort of less exciting in the minds of people and in in their what what they're thinking about. As often, it's not as exciting. Part of why it's not as exciting is that we've been working on it for 30 years and a lot of the promise of it is still in the future. You know, you think back to the 50s when we were all going to be having flying cars and jetpacks and those things are starting to happen now. So with nanotechnology, you know, there is a ton of stuff that's built at the nanoscale there's you know babies toys that are built with a surface that pierces the uh, cell wall of bacteria so that it keeps babies from getting sick but it's just a consumer item and there are nanoparticles of silver in uh, certain kinds of sunscreen and uh, so there's there's this uh, wow future science idea and then there's the commonplace consumer items The really great stuff is yet to come. And maybe, you know, it, it needs to be people's attention on, only is so long, as, as I'm sure you know, you know, tomorrow's headlines are, are, are yesterday's news. I've got that backwards, but <laughs> people stop being excited about things. So there's a tremendous amount of research going on in nanotechnology when the the term didn't, basically didn't exist 30 years ago. Now every country is putting, not every country, but a, a, a large number of countries are putting billions of dollars into research and molecular manufacturing and things at the nanoscale. So I wouldn't say there was a flop, but maybe it's not as exciting to people because it's not as new of an idea, even though we have yet to really begin to manifest the the promise of it in a big way.
1: That's how technology works. It's just ever-increasing S-curves. It goes up and up and up and up, but there's the the up and down, so it's a, it's a bit of a sine wave. I, yeah. I ask in terms of nanotechnology because it seems like, from my understanding, the biggest problem with nanotech isn't necessarily the processes or what could be done with it. It's more, how do we manufacture something at scale that's usable, that's cost-efficient?
0: Right. And so... That's cost-efficient. Well, it's easier to do things in water. And (laughs) and we need to figure out how to do these things, not just in water. There's still a lot of basic research that needs to go on. There's a lot of computer modeling. There are nanocar races. There's uh, cute little things that are, that are, are still fun to see, but there's a tremendous amount of research going on all the time. So it takes time to be able to build things to be able to manufacture things at scale. I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, but it used to be something like five or seven years ago, there weren't enough uh, buckyballs to, to use for the kind of research. There wasn't enough of a supply to carry out a lot of the research, and now- it's, What's a buckyball? It's, I'm sorry, it's a carbon-60 molecule, the 60 uh, atoms of carbon in a cage that looks kind of like a soccer ball. It's named after Buckminster Fuller, not because he had anything to do with it, but because it kind of looks like his geodesic dome that he invented. And uh, so it's sort of a, a, a 60 molecules of carbon in a cage that looks kind of like a soccer ball that you can... that That is... Relatively non-interactive, and you can capture things inside it. You can deliver things and break them open, and deliver very small, uh, precise uh, doses of various and other molecules where you want them. So uh, it's a it's a form of
1: carbon. So a Faraday cage for for nanotechnology and for specific molecules are trying to move.
0: Sort of, yeah. I hadn't thought of it as a Faraday cage, but I'll buy that.
1: Yeah, something something for isolation. Okay, so. Uh, Well, tell me a little bit more. So you're the president of the Foresight Institute. And a big part of what you guys are doing is looking at the convergence of different technologies. So what's the day-to-day look like and what are you guys focused on?
0: So we have a few areas that we're focused on. For the longest time, we're focused on nanotechnology and molecular manufacturing. We are having monthly salons on uh, some other uh, topics. Uh, In general, what we're focused on is Transforming or creating a positive future—the idea of existential hope. We're the the subject matter includes artificial intelligence, cybersecurity at a very high level. Uh, hopefully, to get it down to a very low level that uh, people are experiencing, rather than the, the sort of the mass-produced, very insecure software that we all use. Uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency, and uh, projects off of that, including uh, smart contracts and the like, and uh, and and tools that for you know the. Us all to help make progress on these kinds of things, trying to bring these technologies forward in a way that is more hopeful for mankind and less threatening,
1: and less poorly thought out and ran into, (laughs) into more more foresight going foresight going into what's being done.
0: Right. So that's that's the whole idea of, I guess, of foresight. Really, is thinking ahead to try and mitigate the damage some of these technologies uh, could be having and build the upside.
1: How do you do that when there's such obvious incentive to go fast and break things?
0: Right. There's definitely lots of incentive to go fast and break things. And in fact, that's, that's kind of the Silicon Valley religion, Ooh. but it's not the be all and end all. Fortunately, it's not the end all. Going fast and breaking, things is, uh, and breaking things isn't the goal. Going fast is the goal and making mistakes so that you can come up with the things that work is the goal. Uh, breaking things is kind of the probably shouldn't use the term religion but uh, you know it's the it's the word of the day in silicon valley go fast and break things yes but the breaking of things is only in order to essentially evolve past the uh, the stuff that's not going to work so you know the, i mean but nature is go slow and break things right
1: exactly the problem is when it was on an accelerated time scale with humanity versus survival of the fittest driving it then the the fittest can potentially be reduced down in number to a select minority. Sure, and and
0: that's why we uh, we have ethicists in our uh, salons. That's why we have panel discussions, including people who are well, almost exclusively people who are looking at this for the benefit of a positive future.
1: But no one goes into things looking for the a negative future that only benefits themselves. It's the unintended consequences where the challenges come in. How do you guys deal with that, especially with especially with AI and nanotechnology? There's there's significant upside and huge value to society, but there's also significant risk associated with things going awry.
0: Yeah, well, the idea is to bring some of the people who are leading voices, leading thinkers, leading entrepreneurs in those areas, and opening them up in public discussion in these monthly salons that we have. So that's exactly what we're uh, what we're addressing. Uh, Allison uh is doing most of the salons with Lou. I'm going to mispronounce her last name, uh, Vickerat. And some some of the time, Christine Peterson, our co-founder, our other co-founder, lead these salons uh, with some of these uh, big thinkers of the time. We had, uh, last month, we had one at uh, IndieBio, which is a biotech seed startup organization in San Francisco. And one of the developers of the neural net, now I'm going to forget his name, and that's just the most terrible thing because he's a good guy. Um, And... You know, we had we had two or three hours of public discussion, opening it up and focusing on how are we going to get around, how are we going to drive the process such that it benefits mankind. Arvind Gupta, who's a, a co-founder of IndieBio, mentioned, you know, how do you get a pharmaceutical company to come up with a one pill does everything uh, uh, kind of. Medication when that potentially puts them out of business. How do you balance these things? And you have to. So it's there's a lot of discussion. I, none of us knows the answer to that. And that's one of the things that Foresight is doing and is having this discussion in public. And and those are the public discussions that you know we put up on our YouTube channel so that other people can take part in that, as well as the Existential Hope website, which is open to. Um, input from most people.
1: Yeah, I love what you guys are doing. It lines up very well with what we're doing at Fringe FM. Essentially, we're living in and quickly moving towards the future, and few people know where we're headed and what will happen, and most are completely ignorant of the science and technology driving our direction. What do you think will be most impactful?
0: Golly. (laughs) People. (laughs) which which uh and and when i say people i'm also thinking about you know artificial intelligence you know are we going a lot of people are afraid that there's going to be some the first universal agi that's created is gonna outcompete every other one because it's going to uh, improve itself so dramatically once it becomes self-aware and it will become our robot one robot master but uh, you know the 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 positive view is that we augment our human abilities with artificial intelligence and move forward together that way so how do you make that happen one of them is to a certain extent is out competing but another is to to what to convince others to come along with us to convince others that the the way to go is not to try to take over the world or be taken over but to generate a, a positive future for humanity you know we've put ethics into a lot of different projects, I don't mean we, the Foresight Institute, I mean we, humanity, have uh, have taken ethics into account when we're, you know, coming up with arms control treaties and human rights agreements and so forth. We're capable of doing this. And, and people in general, I, I realize that there are people who don't give a rip about anything but their own power and their own enrichment, but there's a whole lot more of us which is to say that the gigantic majority of humanity that is gracious and uh, giving and kind. And th- that's what humans mostly are. You know, I, I had a discussion with a nephew of mine who's a minister, and, and he was, um, he was uh, doing a, a ditto head thing. And, and I said, look, you know, we don't get run over by every person who's pissed off driving down the street because they're afraid that they're going to go to jail, that happens because people are decent. And there's certainly plenty of indecent people, but people are generally decent and civil. And the overwhelming majority of people are like that all over the world. So, you know, if we get them active and get them talking about this and things have got a whole lot better chance of going the right way and educate them.
1: And if they don't, how how do we improve the future in a future that has more problems than we have today?
0: The fact is we have fewer problems today than we ever have had before. If you're to read something like uh, Stephen Pinkner's The Better Angels of Our Nature, you know, we have, relatively speaking, as a percentage of the population, we have far less violence, we have far more education, we have far less starvation. We certainly got our problems. And if you read the papers, which I do, you know, you get to see those things and, and start to think maybe that's all that there is. But, you know, the guy who got murdered in the next city... Is going to be in your news 25 times today, 12 times tomorrow, and and still going to be up there six months from now. But that wasn't 400, that 400 mentions wasn't 400 people getting killed. We hear about that and find that interesting because it's rare. It's, uh, and titillating and, um, and that's why it sells, I believe. So when things get worse, I think is, uh, an assertion that I don't agree with.
1: I, I would agree with that actually. It's that's a very fair point. I I meant more humanities moving in the right direction, but some large problems are moving in the wrong direction. So, for instance, separationism or isolationism, um, climate change, and having challenges with that. So, where um, I guess what that's a better question. What are the biggest issues that you see right now facing the world?
0: Well, first of all, before answering that, the the solution is to keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing, and not to and to keep educating, to keep opening up minds, and to keep doing what we do best. You know the the worst way to deal with this stuff is to worry about it because not only does worry do nothing to solve the problem, it gives power to the people who are creating the problems. But uh, forgive me, you asked me a question and I, t- <laughs> I ran right past it. When I, would you ask me that question again?
1: What are the biggest problems you see right now with the world?
0: The biggest problems that need solving, ignorance, lack of education, and lack of critical thinking. I think in the United States, those are the, the biggest problems problems right now, even though we live in a very literate society, again, speaking historically, you know, there still are, in in particular, critical thinking is probably the biggest challenge. I I personally think that it ought to be, you know, a full course in critical thinking and passing it ought to be required for graduation from high school. Then you got to get the teachers to to be able to teach to a, a class that they should have to pass themselves. Critical thinking uh, applies to every problem the lack of critical thinking applies to almost every problem I see
1: I would definitely agree with that. I think the problem with critical thinking is it's a muscle that unless you keep exercising it like learning then you start to you start to decay i I'm firmly of the belief that when you stop learning, you start dying
0: yeah I, I'm with you on that for sure, and you know there's some places where critical thinking is uh, is taught, and you know i I went to a high school that was a pretty progressive in that regard, and I had a, a neighbor who was, you know, his his problem with our high school was that they taught us to think, and that got us into trouble. And I'm, you know, exactly the opposite. Yeah, so you, you can't really legislate that people think critically and learn their whole lives. I wonder what the answer to that is. I suppose the answer to that is to make uh, critical thinking rewarding and pleasurable. Uh, So there's a question, how do we go about that? Aside from the people who, you know, you and I probably gain satisfaction and pleasure from critical thinking, from figuring out puzzles. But a lot of us just want to be left alone uh, to do our, you know, thing and go drink beer in the park, which I do, by the way. But (laughs) how do you make critical thinking enticing enough that people are going to want to continue to do it, or is, is, that, is that something that can, is that a problem that can be solved? At least we can start by giving them a, a, a good grounding in it.
1: I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Carta. As a founder, investor, or startup employee, you know that most of the wealth in the tech industry, it comes from equity. It's not from salary. But how you manage equity, how we manage equity, it's broken. It can be complicated to figure out who owns how much of a startup and to share that important information and documents between companies and VCs. And for VCs to see how investments are performing real time, that's incredibly important for raising your next fund. Many investors and companies still use spreadsheets, paper certificates, and slow-moving service providers to keep that kind of information on hand and to share with prospective investors. These tools and services that are used to manage equity, they're dated, they're slow, and it's funny given that VCs and CEOs are the ones creating the future. Picard fixes the cap table equity management problem. They offer cap table management, valuations, full service fund administration, all in one platform. More than 600,000 employee shareholders from companies and VCs at firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, Founders Fund, all these guys and more, they use Carta to manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity. To simplify how you manage equity, use Carta. Get 10% off today at carta.com syndicate. It'll help you with simplifying the cap table, which will make it easier for you to raise money as a startup and easier for investors to get on board. Carta.com syndicate. The era of a single career is over as well. You're not getting severance from your employer. You're not retiring after one forty-year-long career. You're going to have many different careers, doing many different things. If you're not constantly learning and evolving, that means you're you're falling behind the pack, which is both good and bad.
0: That's true. We're in that we're in that tra- transition. However, from a period when, you know, to a certain extent, uh, certain jobs were more or less guaranteed longevity in the job as long as you did what you're supposed to do. And now it seems to me that we're in a a very strong, like you say, Darwinian capitalist race for who who gets the most toys. I saw the other day someone saying, all for one, and that one is me. And that's not really the culture we live in, but that's the culture we're being encouraged to have. So, uh, And and again, a, a solid grounding in critical thinking, I think, would could mitigate that at, at least, you know, for a few years after high school and college. I think in general, in, the, in a university setting, people do uh, have to practice critical thinking in order to get through. And, and, of course, we have more graduates than we ever have had before in, in history going back 20 years or so than we have ever had before. So there's aspects of this that are, are positively evolving. But there's aspects of this that we see every day that is just infuriating in the newspaper when people are just fooled, chumped all the time.
1: Speaking of more graduates than ever, there's more debt than ever. And a lot of jobs, specifically lower skilled jobs, are going away and a lot of jobs are being automated away just by increased efficiency. What are your thoughts on the future, not just for education, but how it all affects the economy?
0: Yeah, you know, I have, uh, I have different, I've, I've had this conversation with other people in Foresight before, which has to do in particular with artificial intelligence. The interesting thing is, I, I need to study this more in order to uh, get away from what appears to be magic to me, but as we have become more and more automated, new jobs happen. And, you know, who would have known uh, that when the horse supplanted, I mean, when the car supplanted the horse, that we'd have industrialized farming and uh, much cheaper food. And yet everybody's dependent on everybody else. There's sort of a specialized thing. We have to, like you said, we're going to have a lot of different careers. What happens when in 10 or 15 years, when truckers. Truckers are one of the uh, largest population of jobs in the United States. And in, in 15 years or so, there are, all those jobs are going to go away because, you know, the vehicles are going to be largely uh, autonomous. What do you do when that happens? So far, if history is a guide, new things happen for these people to do to make a living. living. Realize we live right now in an era where where uh, uh, the middle class is, is thinning out and uh, we, we're getting to be a more lopsided society as far as economics goes there are some problems to be solved. Uh, maybe a, you know a, a basic income might be part of the answer to that and there are countries and communities experimenting with that. We don't know if that's going to work or not. There's this whole idea of centuries of a work ethic. how do we deal with that if what we' we're, if, if we're expecting if we're expected to be creative instead of work but uh, all, all that aside, Every time there's been a, a change in, uh, in industry and, and jobs that happen, you know, the Luddites thought that all the jobs were going to go away with machines, but what happened was a whole bunch of new jobs got created. I wonder if economics and, and uh, work are kind of like a science uh, in that, you know, for every, every new thing you discover in science, you open up a handful more of questions. It's, you know, someone uh, wrote a book called The End of Science, which I think is... You know, the whole idea of the end of science is, is kind of BS. Science seems to be growing more and more and more. There are more questions with each new thing that's answered. It's a fractal. Uh, yeah, it's like Ancestry.com. <laughs> as soon as you find some new relative, you've got 12 new relatives to look at. Obviously, that that is finite. But uh, yeah, um, is work fractal as it evolves? I don't know. Actually, I've never, I've never heard anybody ask about that.
1: <clears throat> I think the one challenge with the traditional metaphor that people use and it's not the challenge that most people think of and that there'll be more jobs. The challenge that I would bring up is in all of the situations where technology increased the number of jobs, it increased it proportional to the increase in consumption. And we're not able to increase consumption X number of times for all of humanity anymore because we're already eating the world apart as we, eating the world and using the world apart as it is. The question I would have is are those, those secondary consequences of the consumption The reason why we were able to increase so much because the unintended consequences weren't weighed into the price.
0: Well, look at some of the new uh, industries that have been created in recycling and remanufacturing and uh, different means of generating energy because otherwise we're going to kill ourselves as a species. Those are some of the brand new things that are being created. Is there a limit to our consumption? You know, maybe, but we may always have new things to throw it at. Is there a limit to the amount of material on the earth? Well, what if, you know, uh, a while ago I talked about blowing things up to make a fork and how incredibly wasteful that is and going to where we can take enriched dirt and air and throw them together in a, a personal nano factory on our kitchen counter and make a fork that way or a steak or lipstick, or the parts for a bicycle to fit together, or what have you, all of a sudden we're talking about having, you know, yes, more stuff, but less consumption of materials. And then of course, you know, we've got companies that are beginning to mine the asteroids and so forth. So we're, we don't, necessarily part of the new jobs and new industries that are being created have to do with mitigating the effects of our past consumption. And, um, And like you say, it's fractal for every new for for every piece of destruction, we may have to create two new ways to fix things and make money at it.
1: In which case, we definitely have a treadmill. In terms of the in terms of the desktop printer, it's a, in in essence a, a miniaturized 3D printer, able to able to print anything. What are you seeing being on the cutting edge and working with these type of companies in terms of a realistic timeline?
0: Good question. So the estimates are all over, all over, all over. But if we're talking about something that can manufacture, well, we're already manufacturing hamburgers out of uh, uh, muscle cells. And I realize it's not manufacturing a hamburger out of dirt, but uh, we're manufacturing hamburgers out of muscle cells. And um, so you know, many of these things are getting closer and closer. To be able to have, uh, the, I think the question you're asking me is, you know, my idea of a, a personal nanofactory or a Star Trek replicator there's certain things that we can do right now, like unfortunately guns or a lot of other devices that we can manufacture with 3D printers. 3D printers have dropped in price by two or three orders of magnitude in the last decade or two. I don't have the numbers in front of me. And so, when are we going to have utilities deliver a slurry of enriched material to our kitchen, like water, to a device that can? do molecular manufacturing from open source plans, less than 35 years, more than
1: 10. Okay. That's a fair enough range. Do you think there's more potential for, I read a sci-fi book a while back and I, God, I wish I could remember it. But essentially in the future, things were much more based off of synthetic biology. Rather than things being built, they were grown. And it was much easier to program. It was much more sustainable. What are your thoughts on the potential to implement similar types of technology, but using CRISPR and more of the lab-grown meat-style approach to grow the things we use in the future rather than build them.
0: You know what? I'm halfway through the book, The Synthetic Age, that just came out of MIT, which is is talking about sort of that subject matter. So I don't see that much of a difference between the two. You mean one using biology and the other one using, you know, minerals? Well, you know, the reductionist viewpoint is that everything's a machine,
1: isn't it? Yeah. Or everything is alive, so you could go the other way, too. Yeah, a biological right. machine.
0: Right, that's, that's a good point. I, I don't see that one has to win out over the other. I don't have a preference to one over the other. There are certainly ethical questions. You know, I, I remember seeing the question, why is a, a dam built by beavers for the sake of beavers any more natural than a dam built by humans for the sake of humans? Well, you know, a beaver maybe doesn't know any better, has to do plans based on instinct and uses, cuts down the trees in the forest in order to make its stuff. And we think it's pretty, whereas a dam is is manufactured on purpose to design by humans with thought ahead. You know, in, in some ways, the dam is kind of more eloquent and beautiful in that regard. I don't think that when I look at them. But um, as long as we take into effect the impact on our environment in a in the overriding macro environment uh, uh, idea, then I don't know that there is a huge line. You know, I, I actually was this morning, I was just reading an article in Scientific American and it said, where does the quantum world end and Newtonian, the Newtonian world begin? And uh, you know, I, I had intended to put that question out there today, but I just kind of haven't had time, but I don't think there is a line of demarcation I think it's all fuzzy. You know, we used to think that atoms were, that, that, a logo that I had 30 some years ago was a was a classic idea of an atom with, you know, six orbits around a ball. And of course, an atom isn't like that at all. <laughs> you know, there's no ball, there's no line of demarcation, it's fuzzy. Things jump from one level to another, from one shell to another, but it's fuzzy. They don't go from this spot to that spot. We so, I think not only is the, is there not exactly a line of demarcation between the quantum world and the Newtonian world, I don't think there's a line of demarcation between the mechanical world and the biological world, especially when we're talking about you know manufacturing for the future or growing in the future the stuff that we want to use or see or
1: make That's the interesting uh, thing it's all merging together
0: yeah, and that's good, I think uh, you know i I mentioned you know we, we I would uh, prefer a future where humans are augmented by artificial intelligence, not where we're necessarily competing with each other for dominance as a species.
1: So I know a big part of what you do at Foresight is trying to influence people and to a lesser extent policy. Talk a little bit about how the the policy concerns are played out, how you work with politicians and what we can do as a scientific community to, for for God's sake, not make science horrible and out of the government, because it seems to be quite the challenge these days.
0: You know, the, the, <laughs> the government's full of a couple of different kinds of people. Uh, the ones that we hear about are the ones who are trying to enrich themselves and push their opinion. The ones that do most of the work in the government are either the people who are trying to improve the world or just get by in the world. The, uh, there's a lot of people doing a lot of good work in the government. And foresight, you know, has several of them as a, as our friends, and you know, we're hearing about, you know, oh, this budget thing is going to happen, and then it doesn't happen that way. There was a a friend of ours in a department uh, that I, is puts a lot of money into scientific research, and you know, th- they fully expected year before last that they were going to have their budget just absolutely hammered, and then shocker of shockers, Congress. Now that the the president put down the word this is going to be slashed and Congress increased it. Who would have thought? <laughs> I I didn't think that. This friend of foresights didn't think that. So there are champions of science in government now. The you're uh, you've implied that science is scary to people and I agree, you know, that science is scary to some people. We've always had the the Frankenstein monster view in people of science and and why is that? I, I think it's that critical thinking thing. I think they're, they're afraid. People are afraid of change. You know, change is threatening to everyone to a certain extent. Change causes upset. I'm rambling right now, but I'm trying to come to a, a conclusion to my thought.
1: Sometimes we get stuck out at sea in the thoughts. No worries.
0: Yeah. So, David Brin uh, is one of my favorite science fiction authors. And, you know, one of the things that he's talked about is we have got so much science fiction built around dystopia. And uh, so much of science built around dystopia, science fiction authors themselves have got a responsibility to start looking at the more uh, optimistic things that science can do for us, uh, or at least building some of those things into, into their stories. And uh, that's part of what will help with the view of science that not that everything is, you know, an alien popping out of the side of your building or out of your stomach or down your throat, (laughs) but that there are these other possible options. An example of that actually uh, that actually covers sort of both ends is um, we are legend. We are Bob. There's this book called we are legend. We are Bob. Give me a second. I'll find the author. And in, in it, uh, the Book it's the Bobiverse Volume One by Dennis E Taylor, and his his next two books. Although I read them, they weren't as delightful. But the point here was that after science was sent down a hole to a certain extent by a theocratic culture, it was also able to sort of save humanity and expand it uh, all through the use of a lot of hard science and a lot of whimsy uh, in in the guy's writing. Uh, that kind of writing is the kind of thing that can really give people. Great ideas. Uh, who else? Greg Egan writes these fantastic futures, starting with the idea of, you know, slicing and dicing an artificial intelligence that is uh, you and your mind uploaded. How do we convince people not to be afraid of science? I, I think, you know, to, to a certain extent, religion fears science, but some don't. The Catholic Church, of course, is is an example of an organization that is both religious and also honors science uh, in uh, work that it does, has done, and contributes to. So I guess I don't know the answer for sure on how to have people be less fearful of science, but I, I come back to the idea of critical thinking as a, something that's required for graduation and a government promotion of critical thinking and maybe uh, competitions about critical thinking that, uh, are, that would raise the concept of you know, smartness as something that's desirable. I'm sure you remember back in the, the 50s, there was a, a really popular song, don't know much about history, don't know much biology, don't know what a slide rule is for. Of course, nobody knows what a slide rule is for anyway. But but I do know that I love you. Well, you know, love and science are not mutually exclusive at all. So <laughs> there's a, you know, there's, I, I know of a group that is trying to put, uh, trying to add these ideas into popular culture so that, Popular culture and popular music isn't just sort of repetition of you know death and destruction and sadness and killing police, but also of of uh, you know respect for life and and what science can do for us and things like that you know there's the idea of a goody two shoes which people disparage and then that idea is turned around when we're talking about heroes so I suppose it has to do with critical thinking and talking about it and working this isn't by the way, uh, something that Foresight is necessarily doing, I'm speaking for myself, but, uh, you know, talking to government about making these things, not just government, but also, you know, uh, uh, tech organizations and uh, making these things attractive. There are a lot of these things happening. There are science camps for kids, and I guess we need to do more of that. Again, I, I have thought about putting together a, a, um, a Foresight workshop that has a bunch of science fiction authors. And that's something that we've kind of been talking about. How do we talk about existential hope and science fiction authors writing about that in an attractive way to sort of counterbalance the, uh, the doom and gloom of uh, that sells newspapers?
1: Yeah, it's really hard because if, if you write a, a book that's about hope and utopia, no one wants to read it. It's not, exci- it's not exciting. It doesn't have that grab it doesn't grasp you i remember i don't remember who it was but they were on the podcast it might have been robin hansen but they put together huh? they put together a couple of different utopia type scenarios and asked people which of these would you want to live in and universally everyone said they didn't want to live in any of them so it was a it was an interesting thing we seem to be hardwired to have some desire for struggle and challenge in, in our lives i guess that maybe is what it means to be human
0: well let, let me say these things about that <laughs> First of all, yeah, life without struggle is boring, right? Nobody wants to be bored. Uh, secondly, I've read lots and lots of books about positive futures that also are full of struggle, but they're not—you know—they're—they're they're not a future of death and destruction. Destruction. They're not dystopias. But you know, the idea of a utopia has been disproven in culture so many times that people look askance at it. But if you think of it, a, a, of of, uh, of utopia as a path, like the idea of mastery. When You don't become a master. Mastery is a process. You never get there. You're, being a master is a process, getting to greater mastery. You don't get to be a master and then sit on your laurels and say, I did it. It's always a process. And the idea of building toward a positive future is always a process. It's always going to be struggle. If you want to be comfortable, as they say, dig a hole six feet
1: deep and then cover yourself up you'll be the most comfortable you can ever be because there's no pain. Sleep when I'm dead. Thanks uh, thanks so much for coming on today, Steve. I know we've had you for a while. I wanna ask you our one last and most important question. And that's, if you had to leave people with one thing today, it can be a quote, it can be an action statement, it can be something to look into. What would it be and why?
0: All right, I tell a lot of jokes and I, I think this is kind of funny, but but it's also true. It, it turns out, I first heard it in the Buckaroo Banzai movie, which I loved the movie, still do, and, uh, but I didn't realize that this is also a thousand-year-old phrase and also apparently is a paraphrasing of it, or it is a paraphrase of things that are in the Bible, but no matter where you go, there you are. It's, uh, I, I, I love it because it's whimsical, but at the same time, you can't escape from yourself. You can't escape from the results of what you do. You always need to be becoming who you are. And uh, so, so that's what that means to be. Me. No matter where you go, there you are.
1: It goes well with the grass is greener where you water it.
0: <laughs> well, that's true. But you know that that goes along with the idea of the guy looking for his contact lenses under the light post, even though they're the other place because that's the only place where he can see.
1: <laughs> God, I hate when that happens at night. Steve, thanks so much for coming on today. Where's the best place for people to find out more about you and foresight?
0: Well, foresight.org. F-O-R-E-S-I-G-H-T. Foresight.org, and I've talked a bit about existential hope, and that's existentialhope.com, from which there's a link to foresight.org. So please come and visit. You know, if you if you want to personally make a difference in these conversations, our Vision Weekend, which is at the end of the year, it's open to members only, but it doesn't cost that much to be a member of the Foresight Institute, and you can be having these conversations directly with these world-changing people who we're going to have on panels and then have breakout sessions and interviews with uh, where you and uh, your listeners can actually participate and, you know, progressing toward a more positive uh, future for humankind.
1: And that's what we're all moving towards. That's the focus of French FM. That's why we had to get you on. You guys have been doing it for 31 years. That's an impressive amount of time to think about the future. I'm sure some of those futures have already come true.
0: Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. And I'm I'm so happy that you're working on uh, a lot of the same kind of positive futures that we're working on. It, it takes all of us, Matt.
1: Ever notice how you listen to a podcast and the host is reading two or three minutes of ads at the beginning of every episode and at the end? I know I have to skip two or three minutes into a podcast just to get to the good stuff. I hate that. I'm sure you do too. The thing is, podcasts need to survive and advertising seems to be the way to do it. The only problem is their trust and transparency that's provided from the podcasting medium, the you to me, you to us message gets distorted. If we're constantly trying to sell you a nice new mattress or some conferencing software, can you really trust what we're talking about on the podcast and that we're being open and honest and not going with the whims of whatever our advertising may say? We think that that is impossible and that the advertising ecosystem is destroying our society as we know it. We at Fringe FM want to fight this and we think that if you believe in the better world and mission that we're trying to produce, then you would too. Did you know you can make a tax-deductible donation to Fringe FM? Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a 501c3 nonprofit. Advancing Science Worldwide wanted to work with us because of our mission of trying to make the world better through science and education. If you guys believe in what we do, please visit fringe.fm give, where you can make a tax deductible donation, learn more about our organization, and find out any additional details you may need to be able to write this off for taxes. If you think that this makes your money go further than passing it over to the tax guy, then we would love if you would consider supporting fringe.fm. Again, that's fringe.fm give for more details. And thank you so much for your support. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.